Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, we're going to transition gears, and it's going to be hard. I'm so sorry. That was the sweetest worship, I don't know, in like years or decades. At least it's the best one I can remember right now. It's just so sweet. I just want to love him. I just want to leave and go back home and cry. <laughs> oh. oh, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. So, Father, I, I thank you for whatever you've entrusted for us tonight. I thank you for this precious people who love you. I thank you, God, that you've found a place here that you delight in. A people that you enjoy. You don't merely love them. You enjoy them. You delight in them. I thank you. I thank you. Just, you know, there's, you know, Jesus loved everybody in Israel, but he stayed in Bethany. <laughs> he loved everybody, <laughs> but he spent the night in Bethany. He stayed at Mary's house, Lazarus and Martha's. There's only one house he could put his head. I mean, can you imagine? God loves them all, but there's one place he's going to spend the night. On the week that he dies, there's one place he's going to lay his head. That's the place you want to be. You know, there's no worse feeling than when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and all 11 are there with him and he tells eight to stay here while he takes three over here. You want to be in that three, right? You want to be in that one house. <laughs> you want to be like, he loves us all, but you want to be that one that he just has to come. <laughs> he can't help it. He's just got to show up. It's, it's where he puts his head to find rest. Can you imagine that? Jesus had a place where he came and got refreshed. And um, that's why the, at the end of Song of Songs, she says, hey, this vineyard's mine to give <laughs> because she had learned the secret of the value of a heart that's voluntarily and freely given in love. She goes, this is my heart. And when I give it, it moves him. And then she tells him to get on with it, get out here and follow her into the harvest. <laughs> that's where it is. I move him. It's my heart. I move him. Come on. Amazing. She's fully confident in her love before him. Well, that's another story. I'm not sharing on that tonight. But that's a good one to share on. But that's what the worship brought us. You know, I, I just thank you. Thank you for leading us into that. I had hope. You know, I, sometimes worship can just bring that hope that he's really going to come. I just felt he was so close. Did anybody feel that? He was just so close to my heart. I just felt him right there. Well, anyway, we're going to shift gears because I have a totally different message. But I, I want to share it, and I don't quite know how, uh, but I'll give it a shot. So, Father, I thank you. I bless you. Father, I, we 
he loves you. <laughs> we thank you for your son. We thank you for your ways. We thank you for your spirit who guides us into all truth. Father, send Holy Spirit. He's the teacher. We are the students. We want to learn from him. So help us. And release spiritual power on weak words. Spiritual power on weak words. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, I want to go ahead and open your Bibles. I hope you have them. Go ahead and open them up. It'll be the best thing we look at tonight. Psalm 102. Psalm 102. This is where I'm living, and I just thought, man, if this place is so dear to Jesus, which is what, that's what this worship meant for me as an outsider coming, for him to draw that close, that quick, that sweet, that fast, it's, it's like I'm at Bethany with him. You know, it's like I'm at, I'm at his friend's house. So if you're that close to him, I'm going to share the pain of where I'm living with you. I'm just feel close enough. You don't cast pearls before swine, you, but but friends, I, you can talk plainly, right? Yeah. I, and I want to share something with you that I believe the Lord is doing, and I believe the leadership in the body of Christ is feeling it, but we don't know quite what to do with it because it runs antithetical to the whole way that we've done everything as leaders up to this point. He's flipped the script, but we don't know how to settle into it. It's just language right now. There was a time when bridal paradigm was just language, but had no reality. But tonight, you got reality. <laughs> it's arise my love, and I actually meant it. <laughs> it's like he is my love. But, you know, 20 years ago, I would have said, arise my love, and been like, huh, Okay. That feels weird. <laughs> He's a man. Okay. Uh, uh, father, arise, Father. <laughs> you know, like my bridegroom, bridegroom language would have just been like over the top for me. Like, you know, <laughs> I just want to leave and wrestle somebody <laughs> just to recover. You know, but now it's like real. It's like real. The language is real. So I know what I'm saying tonight is nothing but language, hoping to believe it'll be real um, and that he will help us. I want you to turn to Psalm 102. Psalm 102 is a very special psalm. I wish I could teach on the theme related to Israel, but it is the psalm of the eschatological salvation of the nation of Israel. It's when the Lord will visit, he will appear in his glory over Zion. And it begins with the cry of the destitute. It begins with the intercession of Israel. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. And then he goes to describe his state. It's dire. I'm consumed like smoke. My bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so they forgot to eat my bread. 
because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. He goes on to say his enemies reproach him all day long. He says ashes have been his bread and tears have been his drink. So it begins with the the cry of intercession and then it shifts suddenly to the promise that the Lord will come to Zion. So you've got Zion in her weakest state crying out in her destitution. And then it shifts in verse 12 to the proclamation and the promise that the Lord will arise and have mercy on Zion. For it's the time to favor her. Yes, it's the set time. It's the sovereign time when God will save. The deliverer will come out of Zion and all Israel will be saved. It's the set time. It's the time of favor. It's the time of his glory appearing. In fact, he's going to say that. He's going to say in verse 16, For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. Man, what in the world? When Jesus appears over Jerusalem in the second coming. Do you know the Bible says on that day, the moon will be as bright as the sun. The sun will be seven times brighter And both will be ashamed at the glory that will rest upon Jesus. Isaiah is very clear. What kind of God makes the moon as bright as the sun and makes the sun seven times brighter to put them both to shame at the glory that's on Jesus? Which means when he comes in the glory of the Father and all his holy angels, he will be so bright you will not be able to see the sun. And yet the father goes, but I made it seven times brighter and you still can't see it. Because my son's glory. Imagine that. (laughs) And it says that Jesus, there'll be no need for the sun in the new Jerusalem, that Jesus will be the light source. The lamb will be its light. I don't think any of y'all just got what I said at all. I didn't. The lamb will be its light. He will be the light source of the next age. He will appear in his glory over Jerusalem. What will that look like on that day with all, all the holy angels? The glory of the Father. Do you know how glorious the Father is? It says one day he will stand up off his throne and heaven and earth will flee from before his face. And he will come with all the glory of the Father. The glory that rests on all the angels and all the resurrected saints that look just like Jesus, according to 1 John 3, verse 3 and 4. That's a serious move of God, right? (laughs) And the good news is, what God does in the climax eschatologically for Israel, he does with us in our lives all the time. The ways of God are the same. The way he pursued Israel is the way he pursues your heart and my heart and our heart. He does it in small measure what he does in great measure. That's why Paul said all the stories... Of the Old Testament are there 
as examples to us to learn the ways of God. He will treat you the same way he treated Israel. He will treat Israel the same way he treated you. And so we can learn the ways of God in this. And, and, and so in small measure, when God appears in his glory in our context, we would call that what? Revival. A move of the spirit that shifts everything when he decides to appear in his glory. That's what church history, those rare moments when God puts everyone on notice that there's a king at his right hand and his name is Jesus. Right now, there's the king of kings and the Lord of lords at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, but the nations don't know it. They don't have to believe they're not confronted with it by sight. But there are rare moments in history where God rends the heavens and puts everybody on notice that his son is the king. And centuries fill the tremors of those outpourings and appearances in glory. When both unbeliever and believer alike know that Jesus is Lord. And you better get right. Because he's coming soon. And there's a period of amnesty. That if you turn to him with all of your heart, you'll be forgiven. So appearing in his glory is what we long for. But the question is, what triggers that appearing? What is it that triggers that appearing? That's what I've spent my whole life longing. What triggers your coming? My life is but a vapor. It's but a mist. It was yesterday when I was 20 years old longing for an outpouring of the Spirit. At seminary at 23 years of age, I'm there going, God, what do I give my life to that's going to bring a move of your Spirit? I don't want to just live this life I want the rare. I I, I want to live in such a way that causes you to move. You've done it before. There are these traces where you've moved. It's rare, but it's absolutely stunning. Would you let me be part of it? And the Lord goes, I've given you a, a blueprint. I'll appear in my glory, but the trigger for the appearance is the cry of the destitute. Look at the verse right after it. For the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory, he shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. Then he goes on to say, I looked down from the sanctuary and I came down, but what triggered it? To hear the groaning of the prisoner. The groaning of the prisoner. Now, now this shouldn't be surprised. This shouldn't surprise us. But if God's appearing in his glory is up to him hearing the cry of the destitute, the groan of the prisoner, how does he produce that in his people? Verse 23. 
He weakened my strength in the way. <laughs> How many of you know God is committed to reducing your strength? He is absolutely committed to weakening you in the way. <laughs> if you live with Jesus for more than three years, you will know this to be true. He will give you a window, a fantasy, a little period of just sweetness. The honeymoon's over though and he will reduce your strength. We shouldn't be surprised at that. This is the God who said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We shouldn't be surprised that when he wants to build a nation, he sends them to an empire to feel what oppression from human strength feels like. Then he calls them out and says, don't do it that way. Tend to the orphan, the widow, the poor. Leave the corners of your field for the poor to eat from. When the stranger and the alien come, host them, care for them. You know what it was like to be in Egypt. You know what human strength does. Don't you reproduce it. In fact, the middle verse of the Bible, Psalm 118, verse 18 is, Don't put your trust in men. Don't you do it. Don't you put your trust in the legs of a horse or the strength of a man. Don't you do it. Put your trust in the Lord. In fact, Peter's going to warn, warn young people to humble themselves under God's mighty hand. Why? He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Paul reminded the Corinthians, he goes, hey, you guys, you guys, uh, you follow these guys who boast in appearance but not in heart. They boast in appearance but not in heart. He goes, you have to remember that not many of you are wise. Not many of you are noble. Not many of you were influencers. Social influencers. Am I saying that right? <laughs> you can tell I'm not on Instagram much. He goes on to tell him God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The foolish things to shame the wise. He'll go on and say to him and define the apostolic ministry. Though it's first in position, it's last in privilege. He'll say, you are already full, Corinthians. You are already rich. You have reigned with king, as kings without us. And indeed, I wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last. As men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. What in the world does that even mean, to be a spectacle to angels? Can you imagine the holy angels talking and going, these apostolic folk. Man, that's a bummer if he calls you to that. Imagine the angel that gets the assignment to one of these apostles. Like, man, my gosh, you don't want to be that. What does that mean? This spectacle to angels. What in the world? 
course. There's so much just craziness. We need a course just spectacles to angels. <laughs> the fivefold ministry. Spectacle to angels. <laughs> oh my. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands, being reviled. We bless, being persecuted. We endure, being defamed. We entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things. He'll go on to say, we're always carrying about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be released in you. Here's my question. Here's what I'm wrestling with. And I'm talking to you guys as leaders. I'm going, how, how do you lead when everything you've ever known says leverage your strength for leadership? It's influence, right? And yet God is working against you to reduce your strength so that you'll be the example of grace in the midst of the assembly. He goes, oh, you're the leader. I'm going to make you the example of how strength doesn't cut it. <laughs> I'm going to help you lead them into grace. I'm going to help you. And if you don't know, I wish somebody would have told me that when I was 20-something. Because right now it's all about the excellent you. <laughs> the gifted you. The amazing you. The strong you. Man. What a preacher you are. You're a teacher. That group has a chance to taste revival. They're amazing. <laughs> and God goes, oh, I'm going to help you. I've got a plan for you. And all your charisma, i got a massive plan for your charisma. I'm, I'm going to reduce your strength in the way and shorten your days. Now, this is a dilemma when you're the leader. See, no one talks about leading when God is opposing you. All I hear is, I, I, I tell you, we, we got a gift called, we got a gift. It's not totally a gift. I, I don't mean this in the whole sense because real people died and real people had pain and da-da-da. But, but I'm saying we got a gift when the whole world's strength was reduced to nothing with COVID. And yet I remember I was on this Zoom call with 5,000 pastors and we were on the panel and one of the panel members said, just leave, just pick a direction and take your people there. And I thought, oh my gosh, no, no, no. This was your gift to show you you're a terrible leader. This was your actual off-ramp of the narcissistic train. Yeah. And you could have got delivered from you yeah. and found God 
in the shutdown and had something called the cry of destitution to offer. I'm afraid in America we will not see revival because we're too strong. But God is committed to us, so he'll help us. He'll cut our knees out from under us. You see, why, you say, Alan, why, why, why are you encouraging us this way? <laughs> Here's why. Because I, I, I want to say this, the prayer movement has drank the Kool-Aid. We think it's the strong cry of the intercessor that brings the glory. We think it's the powerful cry of the prayer meeting that brings the glory. We think it's the one that's gifted and all together that brings the glory. It's the strong movement. It's the answer. And God just keeps cutting away. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. You're still alive. Not yet. Uh-uh. There's only one thing that moves me to appear in my glory. It's the cry of the destitute. Can I tell you, it is not the strength of an intercessor that brings anything in. You want to know what moves God? When you can barely breathe and you have no plan B and you've been so broken and left on the backside of a desert that you can barely get words out of your mouth. You know what a destitute cry looks like? It's panting. It's panting. If he doesn't come, you don't make it. It's you don't even have breath to get out of your lungs. It's a faint whisper from parched lips of a dying man or woman that's been so broken and forgotten. That's why most revivals take place when two old ladies pray. They have no strength. They have nothing but desperation for their children and grandchildren. I don't hear many cries of the destitute. We got a gift where we could have groaned. We could have wept. We could have put on sackcloth and ashes. We could have admitted we don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to move forward. We don't know how to restore the fivefold ministry. We don't know how to do ap- apostolic Christianity. We really don't know. We don't know. We don't know. The cry of destitution comes on the other side of Abraham and Sarah being barren, Ishmael being born. Jacob limping. Moses forgotten for 40 years. Peter denying him. And the other just brothers running off. That's when the groan comes. 
But we're at the place still of the apostles going, I'll never deny you. I got it all. I mean, I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the rock. I'm going to bring it. Our movement's doing it. Our movement's the answer. House of Prayer's going to bring it. We get church small enough. We get church big enough. We get this guy in. We get that formula. And the Lord is working to reduce our strength right now. We're too strong to pray prayers on the other side of words. That's what my dear friend Corey says. Prayer on the other side of words. When you're so broke, you have nothing but this internal groan. My God. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. We sing that with such a nice chorus, such a beautiful little tune. That's of a deer who's gasping for air, who's trying to breathe because the water of of his breakers have crushed and washed over. Not like some little waterfall that you see in some travel Uh, 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 advertisement it's like a mighty roaring Niagara that beats you and presses you down to the bottom and you try to get up and it presses you down and it presses you down that you don't know if you're going to make it help that's what it looks like help we can't even sit still and cry When God helps the whole world and shuts it down. We got to turn that into narcissism. We turn that into our strength. I got the right perspective on the virus. I got the right perspective on masks. I got the right perspective on this. I got the right perspective. Hey, get on my train. Vote my way. And in the meantime, I don't know how you felt. My heart was cold, disconnected. I didn't know how to weep. I didn't know how to enter into repentance and just sit there in the dust and let weeping be my drink. Instead, opinions. And I thought, my God, we we need help. We, We don't understand the ways of God. We're too strong but, but there's good news. He's going to help us. He's going to help us. Till prayer beyond prayer. Prayer on the other side of words. Turn with me to Psalm 27. Are you with me? Yeah. I'm not screaming at you. I promise. I'm screaming at me. Like I'm part of the problem. Like I, I'm part of the problem. Psalm 27. In Psalm 27, David is going to face the greatest crisis of his life to where God reduces him to nothing so that a move of the Spirit can be born. The next phase of redemptive history can come about. But he's not going to do it through David's strength. He's going to do it through David's being broken and shattered. Let me tell you, I wish somebody would have told me that when I was 20. That God works, that God's ways are different. I thought it was glory to glory. I thought the power of the resurrection was so that I could live 
from glory to victory to glory to glory to some more glory and some more glory and the momentary light afflictions would come every once in a while but I would be victorious. Why? It's me. And no one told me that God's ways are crucifixion and resurrection. No one told me. He'll kill me to raise me up and do it again. And then makes me carry the darn cross to remind me every day that God resurrects the dead. And you got to know this as, your, as his friends, as his leaders, or you'll misinterpret the seasons and you think God is not for you, or that small is bad, or that we've been laboring but no breakthrough. No, you might just be on the cusp of your victory because you're desperate enough to actually grow. I'm not trying another methodology. I'm embracing the fact we can't move forward unless you come, God. The prayer movement... He's bringing the prayer movement to that place. We were so strong at first. It's like, I can't use you guys. Just think you know everything. I'm just going to blow the whole thing up everywhere. I'm just going to blow it up. And find out if y'all really know how to pray. And shut all the prayer rooms down on the earth. Are y'all with me? Yes. Okay, okay. You sure? Yes. God's going to do it in Psalm 27. Because why? His move is all about grace. So that no one gets the glory. So that the 11 on the other side of the crucifixion sit in a room and go, that last season was pretty rough. Didn't do so well. James and John had a spirit of murder on their life. They also were megalomaniacs that wanted to rule over everyone throughout all of history, both in this age and the next. Peter let Satan speak to him. Peter cut off Malchus's ear when they came to arrest Jesus. He couldn't even hit his head. He missed his head. He wasn't aiming for his ear. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, they're trying to take Jesus. Cut their ears off so we can hide. Cut all their ears off now. Get them, get them, hide, hide. No, he's a fisherman. He doesn't know how to use a sword. He pulls out a sword. I'll die for you. Misses his head and cuts his ear. And Jesus just shakes his head and goes, oh my gosh. Peter, stop the madness. You can't even swing a sword. Oh my gosh. Gosh. I could call 12 legions of angels. Stop the madness. Just stop it. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. It's what I do to strength. I judge it. Don't go that way, Peter. Just embrace the fact you're going to deny me three times and I'm still going to qualify you. Because I don't need your strength. 
I need your groan. I need your failure. You see, the groan and the cry of destitution is produced by the rage of Satan, the sinfulness of man, the sovereignty of God, and your own deficiency showing up in the mix. The biggest part of the destitution isn't the rage of Satan. It's you giving in to his rage and showing the fault lines of your own life. When they're exposed, you can either cover them up and go back to strength or you can sit in the dust and cry out from that posture of weakness, Oh God, come. Because the congregation needs deliverance from me. They need deliverance from me. (laughs) And I need it from them. you got to come. We need great grace. Well, this is the greatest crisis in in David's life. And God is going to reduce him. Now, we have to understand that the Lord is later in the New Testament going to say that David carried out God's highest purposes in his generation. That's how kind God is. He didn't count David's deficiencies against him. And it says of Abraham, he never wavered in faith. And yet we know he wavered quite a few times. And yet God used it all to produce something that he interprets in the New Testament. Abraham never wavered in David fulfilled God's highest purposes. You're like, oh my gosh. But if I actually acted like I had need or I'm deficient here, then, oh, my gosh, these people won't follow me. They don't need to follow you. You're the example of mercy in the assembly. You're the example of grace. And when you realize that, that changes everything in your leadership. Then you're invited into vulnerability or performance. You choose, but the Lord won't appear in his glory over performance. He'll just take you around the mountain again. See, the greatest crisis in David's life in Psalm 27. Now, this is the favorite of the, of, of the prayer movement. This is like the, the like Magnus, what do they call it? Opus or whatever. Because some, some educated person helped me here. Magnus, what is that? Oh, like the climax? Like, you know, one thing I desire, that will I say, Captain, <laughs> to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to acquire his temple. It feels so good. Give me a candle and some music like we just heard. And just, I, I just love that verse all day. But actually, that verse is massively taken out of context. This is actually the greatest crisis in David's life that he's ever faced. And the problem we're going to find out is that it's not just a crisis from the outside. It's David's sin that brought him there. See, it's one thing to know that God will deliver you when it's not your fault. (laughs) But as a leader, you find yourself in the predicament that a lot of things are your fault. Will he deliver you then? It's not just for leaders. I'm talking about families, parents, 
Every parent on the planet knows what I'm talking about. God, are you going to deliver my children from me? Are you going to deliver me from me? Because I don't even like me that much. In fact, I like myself better around other people. But around them at home, they're beastly. <laughs> Brings out the worst in me. Oh, God. Help, help them from me and help me from them. <laughs> All the kids are laughing like, did he just call her? <laughs> yes, I did. But in Psalm 27, we're going to find out that the rage of Satan, the sinfulness of man, God's sovereignty, and David's deficiencies all climax to bring him to one point. The groan. Look at it. Psalm 27. Let's, let's just, I'll try to go through it fast. The Lord is the light, my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And now we're going to find out, really, if we were, if I was to, I'm going to, I'm going to speed this up. If I was to, you look at the first six verses, it is like such faith. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Even if an army was to come up against me, I'll overcome it all. He'll hide me in his pavilion. I'll trounce my enemy. Ah! <laughs> it's like, it's like he's, he's just, what is that? I am. There's some, what is that? Do you know? I am Spartan. Like, ah, I conquer it all. I'm not worried about anyone. The first six verses, he's filled with such faith, but he lets us in on the actual context. And a lot of times we read the Psalms divorced from their context, so we really don't know how to interpret it. We're lighting a candle when the actual Psalm says he's getting killed. But it feels so good when we sing it. And so he's saying to us, he goes, he's going to give us the context. He goes, look, look at here in, in verse 2. When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, someone's trying to kill him. Now this Hebrew phrase, eat up my flesh, tells us they're not trying to minimize his influence. They're not trying to set him apart and sideline him from impacting the nation. They're actually trying to kill him. That's the phrase of a, a prey, of a predator ripping prey and breaking the bones. Like a lion pouncing on an impala and just pulverizing it. That's the picture here. So they're not trying to minimize David's influence. They're actually trying to kill him. Then we find out in verse 3 that it's much worse than just somebody trying to kill him. They actually are wealthy and can afford armies. And armies coming against him. That's bad news. If someone's trying to kill you, you want them to be poor. It's much better for a poor person to want to kill you. Wealthy people can actually pull it off. They can pay capable people to kill you. That's the lesson here. This is a bad, this is a bad scenario. Someone wants to kill him and they're powerful. So much so they have an army. 
and it's laid siege. And it's so powerful that he's cut off from the tabernacle. He's cut off from it. He's being driven out of Jerusalem. And he's longing to be back in the tent of David where the Ark of the Covenant is. He wants to be in the Lord's house. But he's not. He's desiring it. It gets worse. We find out in verse 10 and verse 12 that he's enduring betrayal. His counselors have betrayed him. His family, now David covers, he goes, if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. He's letting us in. It's a family affair. So he's got armies on the outside. He's got betrayal in his courts. In fact, the same verses will be used for Jesus describing Judas. You are my friend. You went up to the house of the Lord with me, enthroned, worshiping. And now your words were like butter, but they had swords. You were my friend. That's why when Judas comes up, Jesus goes, friend, you betrayed me with a kiss. And he's referring to these psalms. But it's worse than that. It's someone from his own house who's betrayed him. But in verses 7 to 9, we find out the battle's on two fronts. It's not just from the outside. It's from the inside. David's sin has brought him here. David's sin. In fact, he says, have mercy on me. Don't be angry with me. Don't withdraw your presence from me. Don't forsake me. And he alludes to, to Psalm 51 when he said, do not take your Holy Spirit from me and references Bathsheba. So David's sin has got him here. As a matter of fact, the situation's dire. And I love the fact he, when you first read Psalm 127, I mean Psalm 27, you can read the six verses and it's just, I got faith, I'm powerful, da-da-da-da, God's with me, da-da-da-da-da-da. But then in verse 7, we get the real scoop. In verse 7, David opens his heart and gets vulnerable and lets us know what the real deal is. See, if you, if you get into a crisis where you've got a, 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 a crisis on the outside and on the inside, you can't just do name these five things and claim it. The Lord's my light. Oh! The Lord's my strength. He will hide me. Oh, I feel it. See, that would be, that would, that would be a methodology. David doesn't do that. He actually, he writes that positive part after he's been delivered. Get a little, you know, rewriting history. Seven to nine actually shows us what he was really like. Ah! Help! Don't forsake me. Don't be angry. Don't cut me off. Don't you leave me. Help! Help! That's the real David right there. And that's why we love him because he actually includes that part, right? Isn't that why you love David? He just opens his heart. And that's why he's the world's worship leader. Forever he will be the worship leader for the whole world. will sing his songs. Because he opened his heart. And in that place though, the situation's actually really dire. The actual historical situation, there's only one context that fits this. And that's when Absalom... His own son has driven him out of Jerusalem. 
Now, what's the problem here? When we read that, do not forsake me, we don't understand how serious it is. Do you remember when David, when kings went out to war, David began to be a peeping Tom? He sees Bathsheba, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, tries to get Uriah to come back and sleep with her, but he's too devoted to David and the army, so he won't. Therefore, David sends word to Joab to rush, put him in the first wave that rushes the wall and then have the army draw back and let the archers shoot him and kill him. So that's what happens. Uriah is killed. David takes Bathsheba into his house. Looks like a kind king who took in one of his mighty men's wives to care for her so she wouldn't be impoverished. Except God sees it. And so Nathan, the prophet, comes. Do you remember? Uses an illustration that is going to pull at David in a really special way because he was a shepherd. David, there was a poor man who had one ewe lamb. That ewe lamb was so special. They raised that lamb in his own house and it slept with his children. He treated it like one of his daughters and it ate food at his table. That's the only lamb he had. But there was a wealthy man who was connected. Their properties were adjacent. He had many, many, many herds. Had a large sheepfold. But a stranger came, a foreigner came and ate at his house. And instead of the wealthy man killing one of his many, 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 many lambs, he took the poor man's ewe lamb, killed it, cooked it, and served it up. Now, can you imagine how many ewe lambs David had raised as a shepherd? And David is outraged. This man will pay with his life and he will pay back four times over what he stole. And of course, you know the famous phrase, you're the man. David said, who is he? He goes, you're the dude. You're the guy. And your own words will judge you. You stole Uriah's lineage. You took his history. You took his inheritance. You didn't just take his wife. You took his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And you stole it from him. You usurped it. Therefore, the sword will never leave your house. And you took one man's life you're going to pay with four sons dying. Four times. You're going to pay it back. The son of Bathsheba is going to die. Amnon's going to rape his sister Tamar. Absalom's going to kill him. Then Absalom's going to be killed. Then Adonijah. Four of David's sons are going to be killed. And the sword will never leave your house. And this is the verse that we usually do not talk about in this story. It ends with this. You did this in secret. But one from your house, one from your family is going to take your wives and your concubines and they're going to sleep with them in public before everyone. Do you know what that means? That's a governmental overthrow. Can you imagine David's whole life waiting for one of his sons to overthrow him? That's why he was so slow to discipline Absalom. He knows it's his fault. And it's come upon David. Absalom's driven him out. David is crossing. 
through the Kidron Valley. He goes up over the Mount of Olives. He's walking out of town. And Zadok, the priest, comes to him with the Ark of the Covenant. And says, here, I brought the Ark. We'll take it with you. I'll support you, David. He goes, no. I did this. This is my fault. You take it back. If the Lord wants me back, he'll bring me back. And then he walks a little further in the wilderness. And who's there? Shimei. You remember Shimei? One of the descendants of Saul. He's throwing rocks and cursing him. You bloodthirsty man. You deserve this. You killed the house of Saul. You're a bloodthirsty man. God curse you. He's throwing rocks at him. Abishai, one of the sons of Zariah, goes, How dare that dog curse you. Let me go over there and cut his head off. And David goes, Oh. You sons of Zariah, you always want to cut somebody's head off as a solution. No. Guess what? God sent him to curse me. And if my own son will betray me, how much more should this Benjamite be allowed to curse me? Maybe God will hear him and have pity on me. And then he's walking out. You can almost hear him going. And besides that, I never wanted to be king. My day has been hell ever since that prophet showed up at my dad's house. I wanted to sing to him on the hillside. I wanted to give him my love there. And every day he's come since he came. My life has been one agony, one deficiency, one failure after another. But he knows There's only one thing I want. There's only one thing I've ever desired. It's to talk to him. To sing to him. To give him my love. And then it's at that point. God speaks. You see that. That prophecy of Nathan. Is open ended. There's no promise David will ever recover from this overthrow. His only promise is is that one from his house will sit on the throne. And do you know what's at stake? What his sin has caused? It's not only caused four sons to be killed, one daughter to be abused. It's not only caused the overthrow. If Absalom wins, Solomon's dead and the temple's done. Have you ever have you ever failed that bad? And as he's walking somewhere in the wilderness, God speaks to him. David, seek my face. And suddenly, it's like that, you know, that white feather in Forrest Gump. You know what I'm talking about? When it just looks as bad as it can be, that white feather comes down. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, there's the feather. We got hope. Force is going to somehow get out of this. It comes down like a little voice of hope. Seek my face. And it's at that point David goes, oh, I've been here. And draws upon his history and God. Why? 
He's been there before. He knows what it's like to be reduced in the way. His strength to be completely reduced. Do you remember when Saul's after him? Jonathan tells him, you better get out of here, David. He wants to kill you. What does David do? He goes to the priest of Nob, where the high priest is. And he says, I'm on an assignment from David. And the high priest goes, hey, everybody knows Saul wants to kill you. And you've been prophesied you're going to be the king. And if I give you bread and I help you, it looks like a coup d'etat. And it looks like the priesthood has thrown their backing to you and we're dead. So why are you here? Oh, I'm on a special assignment from Saul. Oh, yeah, it's real top secret. Can't tell you about it. But it was so top secret, I had to leave so fast that I didn't grab any food and I didn't grab a sword. So can you feed me with the showbread? I guess, I guess so. And, okay. And Do you have a sword? Well, Goliath's sword's here. Oh, there's no sword like it. Okay. <laughs> David takes it and leaves. There's only one problem. Doeg the Edomite's there. He overhears it. Looks like the priesthood's in cahoots with David. He tells Saul. And Saul gets Doeg the Edomite to slaughter all the priests and their family except for the son of the high priest escapes. Have you ever told a lie that got every priest in the town killed and their families? Have you ever told a lie? How many, has anybody here ever told a lie that got like 50 at least people killed? Probably more. You might want to look out the corner of your eye. If someone raises their hands, just don't make eye contact and slip out. Just just back away slowly. But it gets worse. It really gets worse. David then goes and he tries to flee to Achish, the king of Gath the Philistine king, and he walks in there and he asks for refuge. There's only one problem. He's got Goliath's sword on his side. The very sword that David used to cut off the head of their hero, Goliath, he wears it and the king goes, is that Goliath's sword? Really? You're going to walk up into my town flaunting the very sword that you used to kill our hero? You're a dead man. And David realizes he's, this was a bad idea. And he starts faking like he's insane. (laughs) Literally lies again. (laughs) And the king goes, my goodness, if this is how Yahweh treats their heroes, I'll just let him be, you know, a living example of how bad Yahweh is. Let him go. Then the prophet Gad comes to David and says, hey, listen, you need to obey the Lord and don't leave southern Judea. God will deliver you. Don't leave it. Stay here. Rest in the Lord. The only problem is the Lord delivers David supernaturally twice. And then the next verse is David got afraid and left. A direct disobedience of the prophet in the land. He goes and fights for the Philistine king. He sets up a stronghold in Ziklag where all his family and all the men live. And then he finds himself fighting for all five Philistine kings against Israel. Praise God. God delivers him out of that. And four out of the five kings go, no, in the middle of the battle, he'll turn on us and he'll kill us. 
And David goes, no, I won't. I'll be, I'll, I'll be good. And they're like, David, you are messed up right now. You're messed up. Your life of disobedience and your failures over the past eight to ten years are catching up with you, young man. He goes back to Ziklag. The king says, hey, they're not going to receive you. Go back home. When he goes home with his 600 men, all the wives and children in possession have been an Amalekite raiding band has taken them and enslaved them and carried them off. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever made a decision as a leader that got everybody in your congregation's wives and children taken? Enslaved. It says at that moment that David's men went to stone him. But then the, but then the scripture says, and David strengthened himself in the Lord to inquire of the Lord. Seek my face, David. You know what, David, he's, when he goes to seek him, you know what the Psalms say? God, I didn't want to be king. You did this, and you put me in a scenario where my weakness, my deficiencies, but you know my heart, my tears, you saved them in your bottle. You know my love may be weak, but it's sincere. I didn't want to be like this. I didn't want to be king. Help me, God. That's the cry of the destitute. If you don't come through, I've lost everything. And they'll stone me. And all your promises will be for naught. You see, that's the cry of the destitute. And you know what happens within 24 hours? They get everybody back. And David, a few days later, is crowned as king in Hebron as Saul and Jonathan die. You're like, wait a minute. Did you not read his resume up to this point? He doesn't deserve it. And then he writes Psalm 18. And he writes in Psalm 18, verse 19. He goes, the Lord delivered me because he what? Delighted in me. He saw my heart. I wanted to do well. I wanted to be a good leader. I just wasn't. When the pressure was on, I caved. I cowered. I'm sorry, God. And then in verse 35, he says, Do you know what's going to make me a great king? It's not my strength. It's not my talent. It's not my insight. It's not my acumen. It's not my, my perspective. It's not my anything to do with my performance. His gentleness will make me great. Beloved, until you get that sentence over your life, you aren't fit to lead it. David goes, you know what's going to make me a great king? His kindness. When my weakness and my sincere love met his kindness, he delivered me when I was the problem. 
And so do you know what the new covenant's called in the Old Testament? The sure mercies of David. Right before the cross, Jesus says to Peter, Hey, Peter, Satan's asked if he could sift you like wheat. He says there's more junk where the other junk came from that's already showed up. Like he's already, he's, you've already done bad, but he says you're going to be really bad. There's more where that came from. But I prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brethren. You could almost hear Peter go, hey, I appreciate your prayer life, Jesus. But you did tell Satan no, right? When he asked you to expose me, when, when he said to you, there's more stuff under there, I know it, and if you give me a shot, I'll just prove it. You did tell him no, right? Like you put the hedge like Job had at the beginning, like the hedge. You know, the hedge, like I plead the hedge over me. There's, there's only one problem. God will remove the hedge to reduce your strength. But the good news is, it doesn't count against you. If you embrace his mercy and become the example of forgiving love in the midst of the community. Or what are you going to do when you're the leader and your child Fill in the blank. What do leaders do in America when they're, when one of their children, blankety blank blank, or the assault on their home, or they've lived in poverty where they're so overcome that they do something illegal? do when it's up to your strength Mm -hmm. and the whole time God might just be whittling you down (laughs) till we actually come to terms with outside of him I have no good thing I might just be weak enough now that when I call to you you'll come you got to remember it was Bethany where Jesus liked to lay his head. That's how I began this. And it was Bethany where he chose to kill the ones he loves. The one you love, Jesus, is sick. Mm-hmm. You're like, Jesus, what in the world? Why do you choose the one you love? Like pick a Pharisee and kill him and raise him after four days. Like for real, pick Pilate, kill Pilate. And then raise him up after four days. That'll be bigger. He goes, no, I do this to my friends. I reduce their strength in the way. I'm looking for tears in the weakness. Somebody to move me 
somebody to trust my gentleness. You go, Alan, what's the point of this tonight? We feel so discouraged. You should feel encouraged because if this thing depends on you, this thing's sinking. Tomorrow. I mean that. We have duped a whole generation to believe that leadership is about them and not about his ways. And we've not trained our young people to understand his ways. And we've not trained our leaders to understand his ways. And we're duping them with a westernized, glamorous, celebrity Christianity. Sneakers with preachers with what? Sneakers or whatever it's called. You know what? He'll let you have a big church. But it won't be the cry of the destitute that brings his glory. Can you imagine standing before his throne and go, yeah, your, your church was kind of big, but you could have had me. I could have appeared over Houston in my glory. I could have appeared over Orlando in my glory, but everybody was too strong. Nobody was weak enough. Nobody groaned. Nobody cried. I gave you opportunity. I don't know how to end this. Just do what you do. Just do what you do. I tell you what, I've been, I, I was, I just want to shout to some groups and go, hey, it's like you, you, you go into a group and they'll go, hey, you know, we're growing, we're doing this, we're doing that. And I'm like, no, you might be useful. Just stay right where, just just embrace your, just cry out right now. Like get out of the rat race right now and cry out in your weakness as you live the gospel. Hallelujah. I just want to pray for you. Feel like we're on the front side of the cross and we, we can't get in the upper room because we haven't gone through the cross yet. We haven't admitted that we haven't brought salvation to the church. We haven't admitted we're not the answer. He is. say, Alan, what, what does that look like? I don't know. I just know it's his way. Help us, God. Help us, God. Give us the gift of tears again. And as you make us the example of your mercy, God, 
Let us treasure your kindness. Let us treasure it. Some of you, have, you've been faced with your weakness and you need to hear his voice, seek my face. Your love's weak, but it's sincere. It's enough. Just seek my face. Just stay there till I come. Let your groans be your prayers. escort for revival praying. 